There we go. As you might have realized, this is the week of the longest night. And I'm feeling it. Could you try again? <laughs> Siri's feeling it too. It's dark outside, although ironically not today. We've got some beautiful sunshine. But literally, I'm, you know, I walk my dog in the afternoons, usually around 4 or 4.30, and it looks like it could be 9 p.m. outside these days. And it's been so cloudy. It's hard to get up in the morning because it's good sleeping weather. So that's literal darkness. And then figuratively, lots of gloom in the world. I don't need to list all the things. It feels like there's been extra gloom for a really long time. As I was looking through my commentaries this week, I was surprised to see underlines, which made me realize, oh, I preached this Sunday three years ago when it was in the lectionary, these texts. I didn't remember till I saw the underlines. It was December of 2019. We had just moved into this building, and things felt strange. The impeachment proceedings against President Trump, the first set, were in motion. December 2019. <laughs> Just think of all of the things that we've walked through since then. COVID was just emerging when I preached on these texts three years ago. Then we had the 2020 election on January 6th. We had the traumatic deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, and the surge of support and protests and the backlash and the fighting about it. We've seen abuse cases all over the place in the church, in the SBC, in the ACNA, and then there's us. It's been a year now for us since our crisis began, and I feel like we just keep waiting for this dark night to end. Advent is a season of light, but it's a season of darkness too. It's a season that, as Fleming Rutledge puts it, summons us to sober reflection on the nature of a world without a savior. Imagine that, a world without a savior, a world in which we look around at the wars and the conflict and the chaos and the injustice, and we start to feel that despite our best efforts, nothing has moved. As Ecclesiastes puts it, there's nothing new under the sun. Well, even in the midst of that visceral experience that we carry with us sometimes, our passages today point us toward a deeper truth, the heart of Advent, which is, again, in Rutledge's words, we are not left to ourselves. Something has moved. In the darkness, something has moved, shifted. And it moved not through a grand plan, or an explosion of light like the Botanic Gardens light show. It moved hidden in the darkness. Our scriptures invite us this morning to simply trust God in the darkness. They present us with a contrast between two men, one a king and one a carpenter. One refuses faith and brings destruction on his people, the other trusts and obeys and opens the door to salvation for the whole world. Let's take a look. Isaiah 7 presents to us Ahaz, 
the king who stumbles in the dark. This is a famous and yet extremely mysterious passage, and I'm not going to answer all the questions. Sorry. There's a lot of discussion about it in commentaries. How does it relate to Jesus versus the original setting? Is Isaiah talking about what we would call a virgin or simply a young woman of childbearing age, etc.? But let's back up a second and look at the context. If you have a Bible, I recommend looking at chapter 7. I'm going to talk about the first part a second till we get to our passage for today. There is a threat to the kingdom. Seems like there's always a threat to the kingdom, isn't there? The northern kingdom of Israel, which is also called Ephraim in this passage, had aligned itself with Aram, Syria, to fight against Assyria, which was the big scary world power that was threatening the region from the east. So the northern folks wanted the southern kingdom of Judah, that's King Ahaz and Jerusalem, to join with them. Makes sense. Let's have an alliance. Let's fight off these guys. Well, Ahaz kind of liked Assyria. So he said, nope, I'm not going to join with you. So the northerners attack the southerners, Judah and Jerusalem. They wanted to kick Ahaz off his throne and put someone on the throne who would join with them. Sounds pretty modern. Well, Ahaz and the people were scared. That's a threat to their kingdom. And readers of scripture have something at stake here too because the beginning of chapter 7 verse 2 makes it clear that Ahaz is of the house of David. Anytime the house of David is under threat, the line of the promised Messiah is under threat. So this is a serious situation. Dark times. So that's the threat. And then we have a divine call to trust God in the darkness. Isaiah gives Ahaz not one, but two oracles, two words from the Lord in a row. The first one, which is right before our passage, takes place out in a field. You kind of imagine Ahaz checking out the waterworks to make sure it's in good shape in case they get attacked. And Isaiah goes and find him, finds him. The word that we, in that oracle, is full of these calls to trust and obedience, like verse four. Be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart, lose, sorry, do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. I got excited about that metaphor. The Lord says, it's not going to happen. And then there's a bit of a warning at the end, verse 9. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So the choice Ahaz faces is whether he'll trust in God's promises to the house of David, that his line would never fail that God would be faithful, that God was strong to protect the kingdom even in the face of the threats from the north and the east. That was the one choice. Or he could do the pragmatic thing and submit to Assyria in order to be protected from this short-term threat. So this is probably a rough analogy. If If there's Old Testament scholars in the room, don't throw things. But imagine with me if Ukraine attacked Poland because it wanted Poland to fight with them against Russia, and Russia re- and Poland refused. Ukraine attacking Poland because they're wanting them to fight against Russia, and Poland says, nope, I'm going to make a deal with Russia instead. A little bit like that. So we don't know how Ahaz responded to this first call to trust, even in the darkness, but we do know how he responded to the second, which is our passage for today. He gets this amazing offer from the Lord. Ask me for a sign. It could be as far down in Sheol as up to the heavens, like whatever it is, I will give you a sign to reassure you that I'll be faithful, something to hold on to, remind you of the covenant and my power to keep it. I'll give it to you. Just ask. What do you think you would ask for? 
Well, Ahaz says, no, that's okay. I will not put the Lord to the test. Put the Lord to the test. As you know, this quote from scripture is about refusing to trust God's past faithfulnesses unless he proves trustworthy all over again. Not going to trust all the things in the past unless you prove it to me one more time. Well, sounds kind of good. What's the problem with this? Why does Isaiah get upset that Ahaz gives this answer? Well, the problem is it sounds very pious, but it's actually disobedient. God says, ask me for a sign. Ahaz says, no. It could be Ahaz doesn't actually want a sign because what he really wants is to do things his way versus God's way. Ahaz may prefer his plan to the more challenging obedience of faith. Maybe it felt safer. If he had a really clear sign from Yahweh, he might have to not ignore it. So Ahaz says no. And this response brings destruction. He chooses anxiety and disobedience. He chooses to make his own way in the dark. I got it, Lord. I've got it. I'm moving forward. And it costs him dearly. The Lord gives him a sign anyway. The Lord is faithful. But it's a sign that ends up being both good news and bad news. The good news is that before this promised child, Emmanuel, has more than a few birthdays, the northern kingdoms will be totally defeated. That threat gone. But the bad news, because you chose disobedience instead of trust, Ahaz, those Assyrian friends of yours are going to destroy your kingdom. Laid waste. So much heartache from a no. In the fear, the confusion of the darkness, Ahaz stumbles, as did many kings before him. Solomon and David, as did Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and Adam long before them. So God's faithful remnant continued to call out, How long, O Lord? Restore us. Show us the light of your countenance in our darkness, and we shall be saved. And then we fast forward to over half a millennium later, to Matthew 1, which presents to us Joseph, the carpenter who trusts God in the dark. Once again, there's a threat. Mary, as you know, not Mary, did you know, Mary, as you know, is Joseph's fiance, and she's pregnant as I'm sure you know from many other sermons, engagement in this culture was legally binding. And the law required that a righteous man like Joseph not get married to a woman like that, who they would have reasonably assumed had been unfaithful. Righteousness, according to the law, meant don't marry her. If he didn't, of course, Mary would have had no protection, no support, no one else willing to marry her, a lot of shame. It's a real threat to her well-being and the future of her child. But in the story of scripture, there's another big threat because Joseph was the one who was from the line of David, not Mary. The genealogy in the beginning of Matthew makes that very clear. And for scripture to be fulfilled, for God's plan to come to fulfillment, the Messiah had to be from the line of David for God to be faithful. Joseph was the man, this far-flung heir to a crown that no longer existed. 
So once again, God's plan for the house of David was at risk. It hinged on his answer. And in the darkness appears the angel of the Lord. That was the threat. Once again, we have the divine call to trust God in the darkness. Angel of the Lord appears in a dream. I imagine this in the darkness of night. I suppose he could have been taking a nap, but in my imagination, it's at night. Joseph is always hearing from the Lord in his dreams. Maybe no coincidence, given his namesake. And once again, the call is to trust. Do not be afraid. Look past appearances to see where God is at work. Take Mary home. Obedience to Yahweh is what righteousness looks like here. When the child's born, name him Jesus. Joshua, Yahweh saves because he will save his people from their sins. That's the call. And then we have his response that brings salvation. Joseph doesn't hesitate. That is remarkable. Because he has to know that his obedience to the word of the Lord will take him deeper into the darkness. That it will appear to those who know him, those in his community, that his actions are unrighteous. That he might be seen as a sinner. It will mean bearing shame alongside Mary. It will mean that some will gossip about him and his family for the rest of his life and never see his deep faithfulness. That is the cost of obedience sometimes. Plus, he has to accept this child that's not fully his own. Can he do that? And despite all that, Joseph, like Mary, trusts and says yes to God. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. And when the boy's born, Joseph does give him the name Jesus, a sign that Joseph claims this child as his own. He adopts him. Jesus, who in Paul's words as to his earthly life was a descendant of David because Joseph, son of David, trusted God in the dark. Thanks be to God. The darkness is still dark, but something has moved. Two men, two threats, two calls to trust, two very different responses and outcomes. Ahaz chose his own way, disbelief, disobedience, and he ushered in a whole bunch of destruction that went far beyond him. Joseph chose trust and obedience, and in so doing, fulfilled the word of the Lord unto salvation. They had a choice, and so do we. Every threat or crisis faced by the people of God fundamentally presents us with the same choice Ahaz and Joseph had. Will we trust God in the darkness? Will we do things our way? Or will we, as the song puts it, trust and obey? Will we trust God in the darkness? That is sobering. But there's also good news. And that is the reality proclaimed by the name Emmanuel, God with us. 
In the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, when God is said to be with someone, it means, as one commentary puts it, despite threatening circumstances, the presence of God brings assurance and the faithfulness of God will bring deliverance. There's a threat. God is present to bring assurance. God is faithful to bring deliverance. That's what it means to say that God is with us. We see this even in our texts, even despite the different choices of these two men. Despite Ahaz's unbelief, God was there. He was working overtime, giving Ahaz every tool in the toolbox, trying to help him obey. And even when he didn't, God worked to bring deliverance. Despite the exile, the kingdom of God shattered, the kingdom of Israel, excuse me, shattered. God was there, working to bring salvation through this lineage, working to keep it whole, intact. Even despite the occupation and Herod's cruelty, the shattered hopes of the nation, God was there, working in the darkness, working to unmake evil into shalom. God was there with them. And as Mary's yells turned into an infant's tiny wail, as Joseph must have picked up that wrinkly, gooey newborn, he would have looked down in his arms and gazed on that face and pondered that name. Emmanuel. God with us. God with me. Forever. God was with Joseph, first in a dream and then in the flesh. And God is with us too. In our darkness, in our threatening circumstances, God is present to bring assurance and strength in the midst of it. And God is faithful to deliver us through it and out of it, to save us from the things that threaten us, even when it's our own selves. Only he can do that. Our call is simply to trust and obey through his strength in the darkness. There is one more place of darkness alluded to in our passages today, and that is the darkness of the womb. In the darkness of the womb, Messiah waits. Sometimes our darkness is actually that sort of darkness. God with us, gestating in the hidden places. Sometimes we feel him move. Sometimes it seems like he might be sleeping or hiccuping. Sometimes it seems like the waiting will last forever, but it won't. It will come in God's good time. And as with Advent in general, let's not rush it. Let's let the work of God among us gestate to fullness in what feels like darkness. I know that you all have been waiting for me to use a sermon illustration from my improv class. And I'm going to. My favorite exercise, and I promise it's relevant, 
was uh, basically playing with sticks. Each of us was given this long kind of dowel, wooden dowel. We would pair up with a partner. We would have to balance those dowels in between our hands, like that, with just our palms. So imagine that your palms are up, there's a dowel in between. I thought about doing this with a pen, and I decided that, eh. And the goal is to begin to move together, staying connected so that the stick doesn't drop. It's actually a very soothing and grounding experience. But there's a few things that you learn. One is that the minute you try to do something fancy, the stick drops. The minute you try to go your own way versus kind of this interplay between the other person, the stick drops. So we did this exercise for a while in the classroom, the sticks dropping here and there, and then our instructor said, okay, good. Now, keep going, but close your eyes. And it felt really scary. You know, it's a small room with like 18 people and a lot of sticks. Could go bad. But as we moved together in the darkness, we realized it was actually easier to sense what the other person was doing. We could feel it. We could feel which way it was moving. We could actually feel more connected with our eyes closed than we did with our eyes open. I wonder for our community, what if we can experience God with us in this season, not in spite of the darkness, but because of it? God is with us in the darkness. He is present. He is moving. Trust and do not be afraid. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.